Happy Sunday and thank you for joining me today. So Putin critic Alexei Navalny is currently being held at a Russian prison. Uh, this has evoked massive protest in Russia and they are not backing down. Of course, Navalny returned to Russia in January after being poisoned by, by Russia and treated in Germany. But to understand how we got here, we need to start with this guy. His name is Viktor Yushchenko, and he ran for president of Ukraine in 2004. To many, he appeared to be very handsome, intelligent, and charismatic. So that's him in July of 2004. This is him six months later. Later that year in December. Same person. Practically not seen as the same guy, right? What happened between that six-month period, what happened while he was running for president of Ukraine in 2004, is that he got poisoned with dioxine. It disfigured his face and left him with severe, innervating pain. And with just two weeks to go before a rerun of the disputed presidential election in the Ukraine, there was a remarkable development today. Doctors confirmed that opposition candidate Viktor Yushchenko was poisoned during the campaign. NBC's Pat Dawson reports. The effects were startling. The healthy, vibrant opposition candidate for Ukraine's presidency transformed in a matter of a few weeks this fall into a gravely ill man. His face almost overnight changed into a scarred, bloated mask. Today, doctors at a private clinic in Vienna announced that Viktor Yashchenko had been poisoned. There is no doubt this was caused by a case of dioxin poisoning. We know today that at least a thousand times normal concentration was found in his blood and tissue. It would be very easy to administer in soup. Quote, in soup. So someone must have put the poison in his food. That's what used to happen to opposition figures in Ukraine when they sought to challenge the power of the very influential president Viktor Yanukovych. He was the pro-Putin installed Ukrainian dictator at the time of that country. Uh, Russia has denied ever poisoning Mr. Yushchenko, but he ultimately won the presidency there. All, and also, Mr. Yushchenko thinks otherwise. He does think that Russia played a key role in poisoning him. And even before Yushchenko, poisoning has become sort of a common practice when it comes to Russia, when it comes to dealing with dissidents and people who oppose the current power or their allies. During the Cold War, several poisonings occurred, including but not limited to Georgi Markov, a Bulgarian opposition figure. I believe this is in 1978. He died after a KGB agent pierced him with a ricin-tipped umbrella. In 1957, uh, Nikoli Kokolev, a KGB dissident, had a near-death experience after he drunk a cup of coffee that was contaminated with poisoning. During the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, Oleg Pinkovsky, a colonel in the GRU, began secretly spying for the United States and Great Britain. He helped U.S. intelligence by notifying them that Russia had been moving their nukes into Cuba, which is very close to the United States. In one day, as Pinkovsky was walking down the street in Moscow, he was snatched off the street. He was snatched off the street and they somehow managed to essentially find out that he gave the United States secrets on where Russia was storing their nukes. And that essentially started the whole 13-day Cuban Missile Crisis meltdown in October of 1962, where President Kennedy made this terrifying speech on live television, essentially notifying the world, say, hey, we might be about to have war here. But it was all called off. There was a diplomatic negotiation because of Oleg Pinkovsky, who played an influential, intricate role in exposing the Russians there and helping the United States in avoiding a nuclear war between Russia and the United States. They charged Oleg Pinkovsky with uh, espionage and high treason, and he was soon executed in 1963. 
On the CIA's webpage, they literally have a page dedicated to Pinkowski. They say, quote, he is one of the most valuable assets in agency history, end quote. When Vladimir Putin rose to power um, in Russia, it was after Boris Yeltsin resigned, uh, and Boris Yeltsin named him as the acting president. Now, Vladimir Putin had previously served as the prime minister of Russia because essentially uh, Yelst- President Yeltsin had had sort of chosen this obscure KGB agent to be the prime minister of Russia. Then Putin became influential in Russian politics, especially after the supposed Chechen terrorist bombing there. He became influential in Russian politics as a prime minister, and then after Yeltsin resigned, uh, Putin became the acting president. Uh, Shortly after Putin won his first national election and under his presidency, there have been many poisons and assassinations as well. In 2004, a prominent Russian investigative journalist named Anna Politkovskaya abruptly got sick and went unconscious after drinking a cup of tea while flying to Beslan, Russia to report on a school siege. She survived that attack, but two years later, she was shot dead on Putin's birthday. While Boris Nimstev uh, was working to expose corruption in Russia, something happened to him. In 2015, while Boris was crossing a bridge with his girlfriend, he was shot multiple times from behind. His girlfriend survived, but was the only, assa- was the only witness to that assassination. Boris Nimstev, I should note, was Alexei Navalny's best friend. In 2018, a Russian double agent and his daughter were in the United Kingdom. Uh, When both of them were poisoned, they were sent to the hospital and were in critical condition, but they survived. They both now remain in unknown location, possibly out of grave concern that another assassination attempt might be made on their lives, given especially the the danger that this this guy is in uh, being a Russian double agent. But as I was doing the research for the opening of the show here, there is one poisoning that caught my eye specifically. His name is Alexander Litvinko. Uh, excuse me if I'm pronouncing that uh, name wrong in Russian. He was a former Russian spy. And on November 23rd, 2006, while enjoying some time alone at a hotel bar in London, two Russian agents poisoned his tea with polyuminum 210 a highly radioactive chemical. Now, this was like... Freaking spy movie cinematic stuff, the way they did this. He was in Russia because he was opposed, he essentially became opposed to their government. And this was the result. Here he is in a hospital bed. On that bed, Mr. Litvinko blamed Vladimir Putin for that attack and made some pretty strong remarks. He said, quote, you may have succeeded in silencing one man, but the howl of protests from around the world will reverberate, Mr. Putin, in your eyes for the rest of your life. End quote. Unfortunately, he later died, and of course, Russia denies any involvement. Uh, for him, it took two weeks for him to die after being poisoned at that hotel bar in London. But those are some pretty vociferous remarks, right? And the reason why that particular poisoning sort of strikes me is because it's kind of relevant today. I mean, in August of 2020, we received word that Putin critic Alexei Navalny had been poisoned. This wasn't the first time that something like this had happened. This wasn't the first time, especially in Russia's history, that something like this had happened. But for uh, Navalny more specifically, this wasn't the first time that someone had sort of taken a target at him. In 2017, two years after his best friend Boris was shot to death on that bridge while walking with his girlfriend in Moscow, Navalny was arrested for allegedly instigating protesters to oppose Putin. While he was there, he was portrayed with an he was 
sprayed, excuse me, with an antiseptic green dye, which left him looking like this. Navalny later tweeted that it may look funny to you, but for me, it's excruciating. Now, there are two reasons why we know Navalny was poisoned by the Russians. Reason A is because he duped the guy into confirming it. <laughs> I know what you're thinking, Jeremiah, what do you mean? Uh, so this is a good story. So apparently last year, Alexei Navalny, um, he called up this FSB agent in Russia, portraying himself as one of the investigators who was tasked with investigating his own poisoning. Now, the result of this investigation was supposed to be given to President Putin when done. In Russia, this is sort of like normal procedure to investigate what happened, even if they did it. Therefore, this would give the public the impression that the Russians were totally innocent here. Well, this time, that whole normal procedure investigatory step sort of just fell apart. Um, we do have the transcript of the call, but essentially what it notes in the call is Navalny calls up this FSB agent. He portrays himself as like this former prominent FSB chief and essentially telling this guy, essentially asking this guy questions, inquiring about the poisoning and how it fell. This FSB agent literally just says on the, on the phone, well, perhaps if the flight went a little longer and perhaps if the paramedics weren't as prepared when he landed in Germany, maybe this would have worked. Maybe this would have been fine. Maybe our mission would have been successful. He also notes essentially that um, they put the poison in Navalny's underwear. Um, essentially, that would have sort of gotten to the skin and eventually would have killed Navalny. Um, now, according to toxicologists, um, they say that Navalny should have died. And this is so essentially that's reason A. Here's reason B. And this is scary, but I feel like it's it's not getting a lot of attention. The type of poison that was used to presumably kill Alexei Navalny is super, super rare and can only be made and found in Russia. After the Soviet Union collapsed in the early 1990s, scientists in Russia who were supposedly working on its chemical weapons program uh, say they developed a nerve agent called Novichok. Now, the Russians have never officially acknowledged that this is theirs or that it's ex or essentially acknowledged that this poison exists. Uh, but according to RF, RFEL.org, those same Russian scientists say that this nerve agent, unlike any other, is with some additional variants, is likely like five to eight times more deadly than VX. If you're bewildered uh, there, VX is another nerve agent that the Russians like to use. Uh, sorry, it's another nerve agent. And out of all the nerve agents, Novichok knocks out all of them. It knocks all of them out the ballpark. If because essentially, Novichok, it's the strongest and the deadliest ever made, according to those Russian scientists. And the Russians have used this before. They first used it in 1995. A Russian businessman named Ivan Kaveldi and his secretary, Zara Azara Esmoliva, were, at it, were essentially at the office where they both died um, in Moscow because that rare, deadly nerve agent, Novichok, was put on Kaveldi's telephone headset. And he later died. So did his secretary. In 2015, a Bulgarian arms dealer named Emilian Gebrev was sent to the hospital after falling at a reception he was hosting in Sofia. Uh, both his son and one of the company's executives was also hospitalized. They also got sick and were hospitalized as well. In 2018, as I previously mentioned, it was Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia. Sergei was a former Russian double agent and was arrested for high treason, high treason and espionage. 
But unlike Oleg Pinkovsky, the Russian double agent, that Russian double agent who essentially they killed after he exposed the placement of Russian nukes during the Cuban Missile Crisis, they let Sergei Skripal go. They did arrest him in 2004, and he didn't really serve out that whole sentence there. I believe that's 2006. But even that seemed a little sketchy and a little easy for the Russians, right? So in 2018, they made an attempt on he and his daughter's life. They failed, and now he's hiding for uh, he and his daughter's safety for fear that another attack might be made on their lives. And that same year, in 2018, the Russians used Novichok again. Charlie Rowley found uh, a perfume bottle and a trash can in Salisbury, and then he handed it to his girlfriend. Uh, she proceeded to spray some of it on her wrist, and it was, uh, and she was sick. She fell ill within 15 minutes. That's how fast Novichok works. Two days later, uh, she died, but her boyfriend survived that poisoning. However, he is still suffering from grave health issues. Authorities in that country later confirmed that they had been poisoned with the same nerve agent that made the Scripples sick for four, sick, uh, four months earlier when that poisoning transpired. There's actually been updated reporting on that story. Heather Hallett, a retired judge in the United Kingdom, says that she will conduct an investigation into the death of that young woman and examine Russia's role in it. Now, Russia was supposedly, Russia was essentially supposed to destroy all of this stuff a long time ago as part of their, as part of a signatory at a, a chemical weapons convention in 1997, it ordered the eradication of producing chemical weapons. The Russians essentially claimed that they no longer had a chemical weapons program, with public reporting and intelligence officials in multiple countries say otherwise. Then in 2017, the Russians claimed that they had just completely demolished all of their chemical weapons. I thought you didn't have any more. And again, that's not true because they keep using it. And last year, they got another person. They used it again on Alexei Navalny. And here's sort of an unsettling detail about that. All right. So the history of this specific nerve agent, Novichok, which we know is rare and can only be produced and discovered in Russia. Given that history, are the Russians flaunting what they can do? Right? I mean, are they sending the world a message? Because this specific nerve agent is only found in Russia. I mean, this is like killing someone with a gun and leaving your home address attached. I mean, it's it's not clever here. But are they sending the world a, a message? Are they flaunting what they can do? And Jinska uh, Leguka, excuse my Russian there, a Russian expert at the Polish Institute of International Affairs, told Yahoo News recently that she sees the Novichok poisonings as signal to those like Navalny who oppose Putin. But it is also a, quote, very important message to NATO countries that Russia is using a forbidden chemical weapon that Russia says it doesn't have, that it can harm not only its own citizens, but citizens in any city, any country outside of Russia, end quote. And Russia has done this. She is perfectly, she is completely right. Russia has done this. They have flaunted their force. They have flaunted what they can do by using this in other countries against any other citizens, against former Russian double agents, against former opposition figures, poisoning them in a bar in a London hotel. It's a means, she said, for Putin to level the playing field. Quote, Russia feels that it's being marginalized and that it has limited options to change that scenario. One option is the use of threats. She says, quote, if you're afraid of Russia, that means it exists. End quote. 
if this is Russia showing that that force, if this is Russia showing their force and what they can do, well, what are the consequences for that? Expelling Russian diplomats? That's happened in the past, especially what happened to Sergei Skripal. That has happened in the past. International backlash. How about sanctions, and specifically on Russian oligarchs? What other type of retaliatory steps might be might we essentially be willing to make to counter these attacks by the Russians? So that's reason B here. And as I said, it's a little unsettling, right? I mean, to 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 sort of digest that information, to to know that this Novichok nerve agent is only exclusively made in Russia. To essentially know that they use this on rare occasions and to know that essentially they could be flaunting their power here. I mean, Novichok is exclusively made in Russia. It is super, super rare. Is that sending the world a message that they got Navalny with it? What are they trying to do with Novichok? Why haven't they destroyed their chemical weapons program even after they previously said they had in 2017? And so, yeah, that's that's reason B. Alexei Navalny has been through a lot, and now he's in a Russian prison. I should also mention that he's referred to Putin as, quote, the the underwear poisoner, end quote. Of course, that is actor. He called up this FSB agent and duped the guy into confirming that, yeah, we poisoned you, dude. But the guy didn't know that that was Navalny on the phone. Uh, Essentially, and that FSB agent did say, yeah, that we we poisoned you. We put the poison in your underwear. And so Putin, and so uh, Navalny has called Putin the underwear poisoner. He made those sharply uh, stated remarks in February of this year while in court. But while in prison, Mr. Navalny's health has been deteriorating. He's reportedly feeling numb in the leg and also grappling with back pain. After weeks of denying him access, his doctors were finally able to get in there and said he could die at any moment if that hunger strike continued that he started. Well, yesterday on Friday, Navalny ended his 24-day hunger strike. Uh, My apologies. On Friday, Friday, yesterday was Saturday, on Friday, sorry, my days are off here, uh, Navalny ended that 24-day hunger strike. And the reason he went on that hunger strike in the first place was because he wasn't being rendered adequate medical treatment. So he's called that off and he's lost 33 pounds since his arrest. But he has also left this note for supporters in Russia and around the world. Navalny writes, quote, My heart is full of love and gratitude for you, good, not indifferent people around the world. I am not withdrawing my request to allow the necessary specialist to see me. I'm losing my sensation. I'm losing sensation in parts of my arms and legs, and I want to understand what it is and how to treat it. But considering the progress made and all the circumstances, I'm beginning to come out of my hunger strike. End quote. The Biden administration has warned Putin that if Navalny dies, there will be consequences. Other countries are warning Russia along those same lines. In terms of domestic support for Navalny in Russia, thousands have been arrested. Earlier this week, CNN did a report on what's been going on in Russia. Here it is. Well, Russian security forces have arrested nearly 1,500 supporters of the jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny. They were among the thousands of protesters who ignored official warnings not to take part in so-called illegal gatherings. Nonetheless, those gatherings were held across Russia, from St. Petersburg to Moscow to Vladivostok in the Far East. Many would-be demonstrators were rounded up and detained during early morning raids. 
and that meant the overall turnout fell short of the half-million mark Navalny's team had hoped for. But still, this was a notable act of defiance. Time to begin as President Vladimir Putin was ending his annual address to the nation. Putin made no mention of Navalny, but did warn other countries not to interfere in Russia's domestic affairs. We have more details now from CNN's Fred Pleikland reporting in from Moscow. Scores of people took to the streets here in the Russian capital, Moscow, but also in cities across this vast country to protest what they say is the unfair and inhumane treatment of jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny. But many of them told us that they were generally also dissatisfied with the way this country is being run by Vladimir Putin. You know, I feel like Putin is just abusing his power to unacceptable degree. He extended his term longer and longer, and he is just stagnating Russia more and more. He tries to escalate uh, relationship with foreign countries. Riot police was certainly out in full force as the authorities had warned people before not to take part in what they called unsanctioned protests. And indeed, hundreds of people were detained, although not as many as we've seen at protests in the past. Nevertheless, opposition leader Vladimir Karamorsa, he told me in an interview, he believes that all this shows that the Kremlin is nervous. The biggest thing Putin is terrified of is the sight of people on the streets. The biggest fear for any dictator uh, are citizens of their own countries. The biggest fear for any dictator are their own people. The opposition certainly didn't pick this day at random. In fact, this is also the day that Russian President Vladimir Putin held his annual State of the Nation address. And there, he showed himself to be defiant. He warned other countries not to cross red lines as Russia defines them. Whoever organizes any provocations that threaten our core security will regret this like they've never regretted anything before. The Russian leader there is certainly very defined, but the opposition also defined, and they vow to carry on with their protests until Alexei Navalny gets the treatment by the doctors he wants to see him. From Plaikin, CNN, Moscow. That was a report from CNN this week on Thursday. As I said, there have been international calls for Navalny to be released as he's essentially being imprisoned on essentially just uh, politically motivated charges, essentially, so he won't have to run for president against Vladimir Putin. Russia has a long history of silencing opposition figures, of poisoning and silencing opposition figures, from Viktor Yushchenko in 2004 running for president of Ukraine, to Oleg Pinkovsky, a Russian double agent, and Anna Politkovskaya, an investigative journalist in Russia, Alexander Litvinko, in a London hotel, and many others. Their message is loud and clear. If you oppose us, you will be jailed, poisoned, or even worse, you will be killed. It is a major intimidation factor here. It's part of their way of deterring any opposition. But every once in a while, a young, charismatic, and courageous leader rises up and says, I will. They stand up and they challenge the status quo. They challenge the system. And in our modern era, that leader is Alexei Navalny. And boy, he has been through a lot. But what I find optimism and hope in is that he's not backing down either. But on that point there, while they're busy jailing Alexei Navalny on politically motivated charges because he think because the Russians think he have he has a real chance of beating Putin, while they're busy jailing Alexei Navalny, they're also showing more force in a way that's sort of I think testing international waters to seeing what the response will be. This week they advanced on Ukraine, sending more troops there than essentially they have they sending more troops there 
than when they did it and took Crimea, which is part of Ukraine for themselves. That invasion was in 2014. Russia faced international backlash for that this week and has since pulled back. But the speculation now is what's going to be their next move. I mean, earlier this week, when this was initially reported, President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine uh, essentially told his citizens to prepare for war with Russia. After Russia pulled back, the Ukrainian foreign minister said he released this statement. He said, quote, if Russia really pulls back from the border with Ukraine, the enormous military force it has deployed there, this will already ease tensions. But we need to remember that this step would not put an end either to an current escalation, not nor, nor excuse me, to the conflict between Ukraine and Russia in general. Russia still owes an explanation to Ukraine and international community of why it really needed to bring such enormous forces equipped with some offensive weapons at the border with Ukraine in such excessive number of troops, end quote. In that same statement, uh, the prime minister, the foreign minister in Ukraine, he also expressed gratitude for the international solidarity and pushback against Russia. So all of these live stories are happening at once. And of course, here at home, we're still dealing with the major Russian cyber attack on our government and major corporations. We're going to have more reporting on that this weekend. Next weekend, excuse me. But as we head into this new week, I want you to keep an eye on all of these stories here. Keep an eye on all these stories because I feel that there are going to be significant developments in these stories as we head on into this week. Alexei Navalny, Russian aggression. Keep an eye on these stories. We've got more to come tonight. Stay with us. Hey, Google. More than 100 billion words are translated every day. Lift your hand. Thank you very much for your help. Words about food. <laughs> Words about friendship. About sport. About belief. About fear. Words that can hurt and sometimes divide. But every day, the most translated words in the world are how are you, thank you, and I love you. Welcome back. So we have some breaking news for you here. Alexei Navalny's wife, Yulia Navalny, um, has just released a statement. Reportedly, she just gave this statement to 60 Minutes. Um, I think she gave the statement to 60 Minutes, according to the video that I just watched. She gave this statement to 60 Minutes uh, right after Navalny had been arrested. Uh, 60 Minutes has obtained this statement, and they have just done a segment on it. Here it is. 60 Minutes Overtime. Shortly after Alexei Navalny ended his 24-day hunger strike, his wife Yulia wrote to 60 Minutes. In her message, she said, returning to Moscow might have looked like a tough decision, a difficult choice to make. It was the opposite, in fact. What can be easier than coming back home to the place you love and the place you never wanted to leave? Whatever comes next, Alexei has already won. He survived this horrible poisoning and returned to Moscow to face those who tried to murder him. Putin knows it. His advisors, his friends, his government, everybody in his inner circle know it. 
she said, driven by embarrassment and anger. Putin has nothing left to do but to physically torture Alexei in prison, make his life almost worse than if he had died, destroy the organization that my husband created, arrest his colleagues, friends, and relatives. What else can he do? Ask to kill him again? I am very proud of my husband every minute of every day. I admire his bravery and courage, his tenacity and strength. I stand by him and his beliefs, and I am so happy to be joined by thousands of Russians who are fighting for a better future for our country together with us. Once again, that was Alexei Navalny's wife, uh, Yulia, speaking to 60 Minutes, giving that uh, 60 Minutes uh, statement there, uh, giving that statement to 60 Minutes after Alexei Navalny ended his hunger strike uh, earlier this week. Once again, just an influential statement there being released. Uh, the statement almost sparks optimism. Um, uh, it also sparks just sheer hope right now as Alexei Navalny still is imprisoned. As I said, as I said, I was ending the top segment there. Uh, what I find hope and optimism in right now and about Alexei Navalny, this prominent opposition figure in Russia, he stands out against all the opposition leaders. I mean, he was literally poisoned and he returned to Russia. I mean, if that's not resiliency, then what is? Alexei Navalny, just a very, very powerful opposition figure in Russia. As I said at the top there, what I find hope and optimism in is that Alexei Navalny, he's not backing down. He's like any he's unlike any other opposition figure that Russia has ever had. Uh, keep an eye on this story. As I said, there are going to be more developments this week. In this world where people are staying at home, many of life's moments are being put on hold. At Carvana, we understand that for some, getting a car just can't wait. That's why the new way to buy and sell a car is also the safer way. At Carvana, you can do it all 100% online from home with a touchless delivery and pickup process to keep you safe. And for even greater peace of mind, all Carvana cars come with a seven-day return policy. So if you need to keep moving, it's our goal to keep you safe. Check out Carvana, the safer way to buy a car. Welcome back. So in India right now, they are experiencing a COVID-19 surge. Cases in India right now are just skyrocketing. They're having to uh, put patients essentially on trains in India as the situation there is deteriorating. The situation there is particularly dire right now that countries all over the world are sending India supplies, including the United States, which is sending India some additional supplies, including vaccines. This is reporting from ABC News. Overseas now and the COVID surge slamming India. Officials calling it a tsunami. The country recording nearly a million cases in just three days. Experts saying that's just a fraction of the real number of infections. The healthcare system on the brink there. Train cars being used for patients. So many dead. Mass cremations are happening in the streets. Tonight, the haunting images and the warning for the rest of the world. Here's ABC's Julia McFarlane. Tonight, what officials in India call a tsunami of coronavirus cases is fast becoming a global catastrophe. For the third day in a row, the country shattering world records. More than 345,000 cases reported in the last 24 hours. Nearly one million in the last three days alone. The situation in India is a devastating reminder of what this virus can do. The death toll so high, mass cremations are being held in the street. The country's underfunded healthcare system on the brink of collapse. 
Hospitals running out of room, leaving patients on gurneys in the streets. The government forced to turn these train cars into mobile units. This desperate young woman crying out, this hospital is useless. Her mother taken away on a rusty gurney. Stricken hospitals pleading with the federal government to provide emergency supplies of oxygen after 20 people reportedly died without it in Delhi. The health ministry reported more than 2,600 deaths in the past 24 hours, but experts say even those figures are likely an undercount. With every new infection lies the risk of another variant of the disease. This is not just India's problem, it's all of ours. Wit. And that is a major concern. Julia McFarland, thank you. Once again, reporting from ABC News about the dire situation in India right now as they are seeing cases just continue to rise exponentially. Um, if you've been watching the news this week, um, you know about the situation in India. According to Insider, um, as India is experiencing this COVID surge, uh, the wealthy in that country are essentially jumping on their private jets and flying out the country um, as COVID-19 cases hit a global record. Uh, the United States is pledging to send medical aid to India, as I just said. Their hospitals are overwhelmed. You heard that little girl there uh, essentially panicking and uh, begging for help for her mother there. This is from NPR. Quote, the United States will make more medical aid available to India in an effort to fight an alarming spike in COVID-19 cases. The pledge came during a phone call between White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Indian National Security Advisor Ajit Deval on Sunday. As India has become the epicenter of the global coronavirus pandemic and the country's health system is collapsing. Quote, just as India sent assistance to the United States as our hospitals were strained early in the pandemic, the United States is determined to help India in its time of need. National Security Council spokesperson Emily Horn said in a statement, which went on to say that the United States will offer the export of certain raw material urgently needed to vaccine production, excuse me, for vaccine production, as well as sending test kits, ventilators, and personal protective equipment, among other aid. The United States had previously banned the export of raw vaccine materials, stating an obligation to take care of Americans first. So once again, we're getting this breaking news um, about India's COVID-19 surge. We know that today, according to NPR, India has reported nearly 350,000 cases just today, more than any other country uh, on any day since the pandemic began. The fourth day in a row, the country has broken that grim world record. Many worry cases numbers Many worry case numbers are woefully undercounted, as you just heard in that ABC News report, since test kits are hard to come by and hospitals are completely overrun. The sudden spike has caught the country completely off guard. In late January and early February of this year, cases were at record lows, and the Indian government declared an endgame to the pandemic. Restrictions were relaxed, travel resumed, and gatherings came back. Now cases and deaths have skyrocketed. Crematoriums are running day and night, unable to keep up with bodies. They are desperate pleas. There are desperate pleas for oxygen, hospital beds, and medicine. Oxygen is by far the biggest need in the country right now. Hospitals are trying to ration oxygen for the patients who are able to secure a hospital bed, which is difficult in itself. Hundreds, possibly thousands, die each day without doctors uh, and able to help. One longtime journalist who couldn't get treatment live tweeted um, his declining oxygen levels until he died. Quote, I have never felt so desperate or helpless, Dr. Trupti Gilda said in a Facebook video uh, she recorded of herself, weeping as she huddled in her car outside the Mumbai 
uh, hospital where she works. Quote, we are seeing young people. We have a 35-year-old who's on a ventilator. Please pray for our patients. Sunday's pledge also said that the United States was urgently, quote, pursuing options to provide oxygen um, generation and would be deploying a team of public health advisors from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the U.S. Agency for International Development to work with health officials in India at the United States Embassy. So India, as I said there, that was reporting from NPR. India is seeing coronavirus cases continue to rise exponentially. India's prime minister is calling uh, this essentially a storm, what they're experiencing right now in India, just absolutely terrible. As I said, setting coronavirus, the highest coronavirus infection in that country for the fourth straight day. So yeah, they are going through a lot right now. Uh, uh, India's prime minister continues, quote, we were confident our spirits were up uh, after successfully tackling the first wave, but this storm has shaken the nation, end quote. Once again, reporting uh, there as we are continuing to watch this situation live in India right now as coronavirus cases are continuing to rise just exponentially. Last summer, I actually had reporting on uh, coronavirus cases skyrocketing in, in India. And I'll tell you, based off my experience of reporting on it, the situation there is very, very terrible. I mean, I reported on this one example that the New York Times did uh, where you had this pregnant woman who went from hospital to hospital with her with her husband to try to get care because she essentially to try to get care, excuse me, essentially try to get care. Um, she later died, unfortunately. When hospitals are overwhelmed, particularly in a country like this, it is of grave concern. It is a threat to the entire society. So we need to keep an eye on this story as more information develops. We're going to have more reporting on this throughout the throughout the week here. Uh, obviously, this weekend, excuse me. Uh, so keep an eye on this situation. Please keep India in your prayers as we watch this story develop. We'll be right back. If you looked at America like a bird and that was all you knew, would you really understand it with just that point of view? We've got a different way to look at it from right here on the ground. We don't just see United States. We see United Towns. From where we sit, just down the street, near the post office, by the park, when we stop and look around, what we see are sparks. Sparks of hope, of compassion, of communities who stand firm. When neighbors lift each other up, expecting nothing in return. We're grateful for what you bring and all the sparks you've shown and the thousands of towns that we get to call home. Welcome back. So last summer, we gave you a tragic and just absolutely terrible story about the death of Fort Hood Specialist Vanessa Guillen. She is 20 years old. She served in the United States Army. Uh, she was stationed at Fort Hood in Killen, Texas, uh, when she was murdered um, and dismembered by two fellow soldiers. Uh, this week, the commemoration of her memory, essentially, uh, there was a vigil held for her. 
Uh, this was reporting earlier this week. Meanwhile, exactly one year ago, Vanessa Guillen, an Army soldier from Houston, vanished while stationed at Fort Hood. Her body was found two months later. On the anniversary of her disappearance, her family was in our nation's capital. They are pushing for legislation to change how reports of sexual harassment and assault are investigated in the military. Here in her hometown, a vigil was held to honor her life and call for justice in her death. KPRC2's Jonathan Martinez joining us live now in Southeast Houston, where dozens gathered this evening. Jonathan? Yeah, Dominique, it was a very emotional night for a lot of people who showed up to this mural for Vanessa Guillen. They were here for a candlelight vigil. In fact, you can see some of those candles remain lit. They were all here to support one another and pay tribute. to the day Fort Hood soldier Vanessa Guillen was killed about a hundred people gathered at a mural in southeast Houston to remember her well, like everyone in Houston we sort of made her a part of our family seems like a strong a strong woman I'm fighting today I'll fight tomorrow and I'll fight every day till we get justice for Vanessa Guillen by candlelight through song and prayer they all showed up to support Guillen's family and keep her memory alive people haven't forgot uh, our dear friend we know that other people haven't given up on us and we will never give up on Vanessa I just want to thank everyone for being out there today Guillen's family joined the vigil by phone to thank supporters they're still in Washington DC where another vigil for Vanessa was held the least we can do for her is create change Positive change for others. Even though a year has passed, Guillen's family and friends are still seeking justice and calling for change on how sexual harassment and assault reports are investigated by the military. Every other soldier that, that's sexually assaulted and, and goes through that pain and not able to speak up, uh, we want to be their voice. We're just pretty much here so the family knows that we are still with them as long as they keep fighting. I mean, we will all keep fighting with them. Back out of here live hours after that vigil is already wrapped up. People are still showing up to lay out candles here for the vigil uh, of Vanessa again. We also know that her family said that this time next Friday, they will plan to hold another vigil right here in the same spot. We are reporting live from Southeast Houston. I'm Jonathan Martinez, KPRC 2 News. Once again, that was reporting earlier this week about that vigil held just a year after Vanessa Guillen's death. According to the Texas Tribune, quote, uh, just a year after her death, her family is still fighting for justice. They say the family and advocates are saying that not enough has changed in the military just a year after Vanessa's death. Uh, it says here, quote, Army Specialist Vanessa Gaines' murder at Fort Hill and Killen last year exposed a pattern of violence and abuse against soldiers at the United States uh, military's largest active duty base and sparked national outrage over federal officials' handling of sexual harassment and non-combat non deaths. Gein told her family that she is being sexually harassed by several fellow soldiers at Fort Hood before she went missing, which happened over one year ago, uh, Thursday. In the years since her death, lawmakers have filed bills aimed at strengthening responses to sexual harassment, and the military has launched investigations into the base's culture. Fourteen U.S. Army leaders, including commanders and other leaders at Fort Hood, were fired or suspended. But even as the U.S. Army rolls out new policies, including some announced last week, her family, advocates, and lawmakers are still calling for more changes to how military officials respond to sexual harassment and violence against soldiers. Quote, my frustration, my anger is the same because it's not fair. My sister was murdered the way she was. According to Vanessa Guillen's 17-year-old sister, Lupe Guillen, said at a press conference Tuesday, quote, She had to be murdered for everyone to realize all of these issues. This has happened for decades.
end quote. The Secretary of the Army acknowledged during a press conference in August that the base had, quote, the most cases for sexual assault and harassment and murders for our entire formation of the U.S. Army. At least 159 Fort Hood soldiers died out of combat between 2016 and last year, including seven homicides and 71 suicides, according to an analysis by the New York Times. Vanessa Gein was 20 years old when she was uh, bludgeoned to death in an armory room where she worked. Her body was carried away, mutilated, and buried in a shallow grave nearby. It took two weeks for investigators to find her body. End quote. Once again, reporting from the Texas Tribune there. Uh, in the recent days, there has been reporting, um, as, of course, the new Secretary of Defense is Secretary uh, Lloyd Austin. There has been new reporting, um, essentially, about him stamping out sexual harassment in the United States military. He mentioned that at his confirmation hearing. He is actively doing that right now. According to a panel that has just released their investigative report on this, they say that, essentially, we should take issues and matters like sexual harassment and sexual assault out of the commander's hands. Perhaps... Uh, let an independent investigatory committee essentially investigate that. So that is an interesting development in this case. Uh, once again, the fight for Vanessa Guillen, the fight for justice in this case, still continues right now. We are also watching more developments on this story and many others about missing soldiers. Earlier this week, we got to see the Vanessa Guillen Gate unveiled at Fort Hood. That was promised by Fort Hood commanders and leadership. We got to see it earlier this week. Uh, just developments in this case. Once again, Vanessa Guillen, 20 years old. Um, 20 years old. We'll be right back. Oh, I wanted to ask you. Uh, Liz and I are going to do some work around the house. Do you know any good contractors? I might. Oh, that's great. Can you check their qualifications? Make sure they have great reviews. And research the average price for the job. Oh, and book them on Wednesday. Actually, make it Friday. It went in the water. You can't expect your neighbors to do everything HomeAdvisor can. So for a better way to get home projects done right, just ask HomeAdvisor. Welcome back. So I do want to let you know about a couple of developments we're going to be doing here on the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Uh, once again, I apologize for not posting yesterday. I was trying to essentially just see what I was going to talk about at the top of the show yesterday. That sort of got delayed there. Uh, but I'm, I've posted again today, so I'm going to be posting another episode that was supposed to be the second episode this weekend. That episode will be posted tomorrow. It's going to be about racial justice and equity. It's also going to be about the U.S. Capitol insurrection and also voting rights. I'm also going to be talking about the Chinese cyber attack on the National Security Agency and Microsoft, also denuclearization. So we're going to have a packed show tomorrow. Um, another thing to watch out for this week here on the Jeremiah Patterson Show, this Wednesday, I'm going to be talking about mass shootings here in the United States and just this devastating realization and sort of unsettling normalization we have come to as a nation when it comes to mass shootings in the nation, whether it's little kids hiding in closets and teachers shielding them or high schoolers running for their lives Um running out of bathrooms, running out of everywhere just to get out of the school to survive, to make it to their next birthday, or to, to run into the arms of their parents or their guardians or their grandparents or whoever out there uh, to survive these shootings. It's just absolutely chaotic. Or if it's, or if it's just family members shopping at an El Paso Walmart in El Paso, Texas, 2019, I mean, mass shootings is a devastating realization. Or if you're just enjoying a, a movie with your friends and family, it's, it's unsettling, but it is something that we have 
unfortunately, it's something that's become normalized in this country uh, because of how often they occur. We're going to have reporting on that and the recent mass shootings that have just transpired. All that is coming up on the Jeremiah Patterson Show this week. Uh, Thank you so very much for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. If you're watching this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching uh, this video on the Jeremiah Patterson Show YouTube channel. Have a great day. Remember to stay positive and inspired. Enjoy your week and take care.